Welcome back. I'm JD Crabtree of Yakwara, and it appears Good Company is becoming an unstoppable movement at this point. We have guests, we have news, maybe even stock advice if you stick around. Who knows? What we do know is we will not stop releasing you audio gold. So let's get started on the newest episode of Good Company. All right, everybody, we have got another stellar guest here on the set of Good Company. Johnny and I are super excited to bring on Savannah Sanchez, otherwise known as the Social Savannahs. Savannah, um, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. I think uh, jumping right into it, do you mind just giving everybody a quick overview of all things Social Savannah and, and kind of the world you've built in the niche? Absolutely. So, um, hi, I'm Savannah. What I do for a living is Facebook advertising, Snapchat, TikTok, and Google ads for direct-to-consumer brands. So I am a freelancer. I work with a variety of clients, um, ranging from beauty brands to phone cases to razors. Um, So it's a wide variety of products I work with, um, all e-commerce, and then helping them acquire new customers through um, digital advertising and helping them create the ad creatives um, for those platforms as well. Absolutely. How did you evolve into into this? Like, did, were you at a brand to start? Was it always, uh, did it start at a young age? Like, what, what was the, the story to get there? For sure. So when I was 15, I actually was working at a clothing store. And this was right when Instagram just came out. So I like to think that I was on the forefront of that trend. And when I was working at that store, I told the store owner, I'm like, hey, we have to go on this Instagram trend. Like, let's post like the photos of the cute clothes we have. Like, I'll model them. We'll post on our Instagram and make a Facebook page. And we'll start getting more sales to posting on that. So he was like, okay, I haven't heard of this whole Instagram thing, but whatever. Do do what you wish. And so I sort of built up the first Instagram presence of this place. And this is like 10 years ago. So way before any of this was ever a thing. But it caught on. They got new sales from it, um, new new people discovering the store. And so that's what kind of sparked my interest in social media advertising. And then I went to college. And in college, I studied business administration. And throughout that, I just picked up a bunch of social media internships for a lot of random brands, um, dip managing like their Instagram profiles. Back then, it was all about like how can we use bots to increase followers and like engagement bots. It was all these ways to kind of hack the Instagram algorithm in order to grow your page organically, which is now all totally banned. But back then that was how we grew Instagram pages and how do we buy Facebook likes. So that's how I kind of started in this whole world. And then after I graduated college, I went off to get my MBA in data analytics. So something that I really have a lot of interest in is um, the marketing analytics side of advertising, um, how to analyze data metrics and um, get actionable conclusions from marketing data. So went off to get my MBA. I thought that I would be like a data analysis person at a brand. That was kind of what my overall goal was. Ended up once I graduated with my MBA, I got a job at a marketing agency that did paid social advertising. So they did Facebook ads, Google ads for e-commerce brands. So that was kind of right in line with my interest. I had all this social mm-hmm. media experience. Now I understood data analytics a lot more. And so they hired me as a media buyer. This was my first time media buying, but it kind of combined the two worlds that I came from and to analyze the metrics of 
all of their digital campaigns. So that was really my my first thrust into this e-commerce world, and that was um, just over two two years ago, um, two or three years ago, and was a media buyer at this agency. Within the first six months, I became um, one of the top media buyers. I was media buying on the largest accounts like ColourPop Cosmetics, um, Love Wellness, and brands that were spending uh, millions of dollars in advertising a month. And somehow I became the one that was managing all these budgets. But I learned really quickly, became obsessed with this whole media buying world. And then after I was at the agency for a few years, became a manager there. And then Eventually, in January of this year, I decided I'm actually going to go off on my own, become a consultant. I'll work with brands directly on their paid social campaigns. So that was very long-winded, but that is my um, background and how I got to where I am today, being a freelancer consultant. That's awesome. Uh, super curious. I mean, obviously, you've, you've worked in tons of different platforms and you've worked like kind of in-house as well as as an agency and now kind of like as this like kind of hybrid of being like a little bit in-house as a consultant you know how has that changed how you approach working with clients like is it the same approach that you had at the agency is there things and like ways you're able to approach clients differently as a individual consultant that how's that evolved for you over time i would say there's there's a lot of differences and similarities between working with an agency for your paid social versus working with a consultant directly one of the things about agencies is that there is often a lot of turnover. Brands are often working with different people. They're working with large teams. So you never really develop that one-on-one connection with your media buyer because it's just the way the agencies go. Accounts are passed around. And sometimes you get junior media buyers on your account who maybe don't have the right expertise. Um, when you sign up for an agency, you don't really know who you're actually going to be working with at that agency and what their background is. So that was one of the main reasons why I wanted to leave the agency and just offer my services directly. Because when you work with a consultant like myself, you know my background, you know all the brands I've worked with. I have all of these reviews from the brands that I've helped scale. They know that they're working with me directly. And because I only work with a few brands at the time, they're going to get the majority of my time. And they know that they're they're not going to get passed off to a junior media buyer or have to deal with all these agency structures and teams, account managers. It just makes the process so much more streamlined, especially now that the world is all remote. I'm essentially just a member of their remote team who works part-time for them. So um, I think it's a lot better of a structure for the clients to be working with um, a consultant directly rather than the complexities of a large agency. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. You know, you talked a little bit about like being choosy of clients and, and who you work with. And I think that brings us a little bit to, you know, what we like to talk about on every podcast is, is like what we think makes a good company. And I think that's a really interesting way to start is like, obviously, as an individual, your biggest like limited resource is your time. So overarching, and we'll kind of get into each piece. But when you think about like, what makes a great company, and particularly one that you have interest in working with, you know, what are you looking for there? Is it, you know, is it something about their team that you'll be working with directly? Is it something about the product or a specific market? Yeah, what gets you excited about, you know, working with a great company? That's such a great question. I would say it, it's a it's twofold on how I evaluate clients that I like to work with. Number one is that I want to see that they have some past success. So it doesn't have to be massive, like they sold a million dollars of the products this year. It can be like they grew their Instagram following a lot. Um, They have a really great presence on Facebook ads. They they somehow have have already seen some traction to where the market is proven um, for product market fit. And um, they, they have something they want to just expand on. So people will come to me and they're like, hey, like, we have some good traction. Now we want to take it to the next level. And I think 
we want to bring you on as a consultant to help us. So that's usually a great introduction where I'm like, okay, they have something going for them. They have some momentum behind them. This seems like an exciting project to work on. Compared to when I get emails, it's like, my company is failing. Paid ads have never worked for us. I, I've been through five <laughs> different agencies in the last six months. Please help. I'm like, oh God, um, I, I don't want to be on this sinking ship. <laughs> and I, I definitely <laughs> can't help you. It seems like the problem is way bigger than just paid social. It sounds like you're asking me to save your company, which I definitely can't do. You mean like as as like a social consultant, you you can't like figure out a whole like business strategy and redo all of their product and operations and logistics. <laughs> I can't fix their website. I can't fix their people. <laughs> they're they're bad products. They're overpriced. Like it can be a combination of things, but they're hoping that buying the right Facebook ad is going to help them. And that's just ridiculous. And like no amount of paid social budget or great advertising is going to save the sinking ship. But, you can bring the uh, the perfect yeah. person to the ship, but if it's sinking, I don't know if they're going to jump on board. So yeah, just it, it signals like this is going to be a headache. And um, if if they don't even if believe in themselves, really, that's kind of also the part of it too. Is like just the energy that it brings. Like if I get an email and they're talking about like one of their latest accomplishments, like, Oh, we're so proud of our product. We just got this award or this recognition. Like I said, it doesn't have to be big, but it can be big to them. That gets me excited to work with them. Cause I'm like, Oh, like they're confident. They're proud of what they're building as opposed to the energy of like, we need you to save us. And like, we've had such a bad experience with other agencies. Like I just can't help but think to myself, like, well, why wouldn't you also have a bad experience with me if, you had five different agencies in the last year that you've all had a bad experience with. Like I, I start to wonder what's the common denominator here. Um. Right. Yeah. Like when we talk about good company, there's kind of like three different areas we talk about. And the first one is, is culture. And you've talked about this. I mean, a little bit, I think, especially as, you know, being a consultant, obviously you've talked in some things of like passion and, and positive momentum, specifically as someone like working across multiple companies, like what do you look for in terms of like a culture since you're going to kind of be joining them part time? And what, when you think about like the best clients you've worked with, and maybe this can be true, you know, even back in agency days as well, like, is there any like common threads that you see? across these companies in terms of culture that like really differentiates the good companies from the, the maybe not as great ones? For sure. I, I definitely have worked with enough companies to be able to identify a few things that I absolutely look for when working with the client. And from my past experience, even working at that agency, things that really drove me to say like, I can't do this anymore. The agency life at this company wasn't <laughs> for me. So a few of those things in particular that I think are so important to me is boundaries and expectations. So what I mean by that is when I was working at the agency, um, it was a type of culture where everyone has to be on call, on Slack, 24-7, replying to messages at 10 p.m. at night, expecting to work on weekends. Um, the culture was everyone would be on their computers doing campaign management till like 8 p.m. in the office. So that's something that really stood out to me is like, I, I want a company that respects my time and my boundaries and my personal life. And it should almost be an unwritten rule that like, you don't slack your team members on the weekends unless it's absolutely urgent because um, people want time to disconnect from work. And um, so I think that's really important. And there's a couple of clients I work with where I'm also in their Slack channels and I see that the owner of that company is asking their employees questions at all hours in the nights and saying, hey, who can pick up this work this weekend? And I'm just like, that's, I would not want to work full time for this company because. <laughs> 
I can really easily tell that the boundaries aren't respected and that the expectation is that you're working all the time, which in this remote world, it's it's easy to do because everyone's so connected with their computers and um, mobile phones. But I think it's it's really it's a really dangerous company culture president to set. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good point. I mean, I, JD can probably talk about this in an even less biased way than I can, but I think it's it's always a hard balance. Again, what you said, I think is like so so poignant right now, particularly like work-life balance, I think is always hard, particularly at a startup or a rapidly growing company. And then when you think about there really being no barrier, like, you know, in some ways it's great, there's no commute, right? But there's also probably for most of us, not really much of a barrier in between work and life. And so like, we all only have so many creative hours of work in a day. And so like, at some point, you know, you know, effort can only go so far if you kind of burn through all of your creative juices. And so, yeah, I think that's such a good point and, and something that, you know, I think, frankly, like a really hard balance to, to figure out and, and like, and it's never been more important than it is now. For sure. I think the companies that I'm working with that are succeeding the most also understand boundaries the most, like what you said, like, People can't be on call 24-7 or even for the full eight hours of the day. Like people check out for an hour, they run errands, they play with their kids, they do whatever they need to do to like mentally refresh. Doesn't mean that they're ignoring their responsibilities, but part of doing great work, whether it's me doing campaigns for clients or creatives making new video ads, is having space to just think and, and maybe watch sports for an hour or do something so they can come back refreshed and in a better mindset to work. So to expect someone to always be on call, to answer your Slack message at all all times during the day, um, I think is an unreasonable expectation. So the brands that I work with that are doing really well, I find that they have really clear expectations of what they want for their employees. Like, hey, we need you like available to talk during these hours, but these hours you're free to um, do your work on your own. So the expectations are set of when you should be on call versus not. But also expectations are set about output. So we're expecting this week that you're launching this, this, and this campaign, but they're not setting necessarily like time restraints on that. Like you must spend eight hours per day working on this. It's like, you know, your schedule, you know, um, how your own abilities, if you can get this campaign launched faster, great. Then you can have the rest of your free time for the rest of the day. Um, so really clear expectations on what output is expected, but not also attaching that you must spend all your time on this as well. Um, I found that to be a really successful strategy. Yeah, I think that that's awesome. I think, you know, it's like being being outcomes focused rather than like effort and effort measured in like hours you've worked. I think, you know, this is my second company that I started. And I think especially my first company was based in D.C., and I think fortunately, there's an awful lot of people, hopefully like us, who believe these things. But I think, you know, especially in startup culture over the last decade, like kind of like that burnout culture was so glorified of like you measure how good you are at your job by like how awful you feel and how little you sleep and all yep. those different sorts <laughs> of things. And, and I think it's just like really exciting to see, I think like a pretty large shift, especially as like everyone's kind of so like existentially exhausted from everything this year, a big shift to saying like, no, like we, it's really important that we invest in, you know, our mental health, invest in family, invest in the things that allow us to be really excellent uh, during the times that we're working versus sure. working like a certain amount of time. Absolutely. Uh, the late two thousands, the uh, the burnout years, as well. We'll look back, but um, I wish uh, it was the late two thousands. I feel like there's still so many companies that are like that today. Like I said, the agency I worked at, some of the clients I consult, it's. I feel like it has, like for some companies, it hasn't gotten any better than that. It's still like a badge of honor of 
how many hours you worked and how late you're messaging your boss. Have you gotten pretty good at reading that um, prior to the engagement? I mean, I feel like sometimes it might be hard to, uh, until you're in the, you know, machine or in the the partnership. Um, But like, can you like do, can you like see the red flags prior to? Yeah, I could definitely see the red flags. I would say like in the first like emails or intro calls, I like to be very um, forward about like what I am going to produce. Like I'm going to launch our campaigns. This is the scope of work. I'll be available during these hours. Um, So I like to set my boundaries really clearly to them. And then you can kind of see by the way they react. Like for instance, I have a rule where, um, and this is actually a new rule I created for myself over the last couple of months um, to fight burnout is I no longer use Slack um, to communicate with my clients, which kind of blows a lot of their minds. They're like, we need you on Slack. (laughs) I'm like, well, no, (laughs) I'm not going to be on your Slack because I don't want to set the president that I'm available at any moment's time. Like I have a project management system that I use where I will respond within the next few hours during the working day. I don't want it to be like just a bunch of messages from all these clients all the time. So there was the one thing that I look at is like, if they're like, no, we need you on Slack. That's kind of a, a bad sign. Like, why do you need me at a moment's notice? Um, no, we need you on Slack. Yes, that, that's been a deal breaker. It really has. Like, Pete Brands have said, we don't want to work with you if you're not going to join our Slack channels. And I'm like, okay, well then I already know what company culture you guys have. And I'm I'm done with that burnout life. So uh, no, thank you. Absolutely. Yeah, so that makes sense. And I'm actually taking a ton of notes here because I'm trying to better understand relationships and, and uh, conversations with freelancers and consultants. So it's good to know that like talk openly about if they want to be on Slack or not. Because I think a lot of assumption for people, not saying like, I'm not disagreeing anyway, but I think a lot of assumption in-house is like, yeah, let's have them, let's bring them into the Slack family and we'll instant message all the time. But like, like my worst you know, you're, <laughs> you're your own, you're your own business. And like that, that doesn't, you're not like technically on our time at all and like how we want to operate. Um, so that, that makes yeah. a lot of sense. I guess moving to the next section here, which is actually, you know, the, the second pillar around data, same, same vein of like when you're talking to companies and maybe looking for red flags, or I guess, or green flags, good flags, I don't know, like good flags. It's like, like how much uh, you could call it like data literacy or, or data driven culture or, or like, are you looking for a team? Like, are they, is it a bad thing if they're just expecting you to just like share all the numbers, explain to them everything? Or do you like when people are doing a ton of edu- like, you know, whether you call it like social campaign education on their side before they talk to you? Does that make sense? That does make sense. I would say that is a red flag if a company does not know their own data or understand some of their basic metrics of their business, especially for e-commerce. That's the type of brands that I work with. So if they don't have any basic understanding of like, what is return on ad spend? What type of CPA do we need? What's our average order value? Like these are the core pillars of their business. Like they need to understand these in depth. That doesn't mean that they need to know how to media buy and these advanced bidding strategies on Facebook. Like I can hundred percent understand why an owner of the company or VP of marketing would not want to get too into the weeds um, if their position is more of like an overarching strategy. But at the same time, they need to understand some of the basic principles around um, what metrics are important, what leading indicators should we be looking at for success and all that good stuff. When I talk to a company and, and they don't really understand their own data, then that makes me feel, again, that they're not very confident um, in their own processes or product to be able to understand it. So to bring me on to try to teach you about your own product and your own metrics, uh, I think that's 
that's not a very good way to go about it. I'm there to kind of expand on your your knowledge of your data and help explain, of course, the more detail and more advanced metrics. But absolutely, I look for brands that already have a core understanding of what they need to be successful and um, where they want to go in terms of um, their data and leading indicators. That's awesome. I mean, I think, you know, obviously, we, we, we both work with quite a few, you know, different types of brands from people who are selling like, you know, a, a $10 product, something like conversion rate or units per transaction is like an immediate leading indicator, right? Like there's very little consideration sure. cycle. And then on the other side of things, you know, you have someone that's selling like a $5,000, you know, outdoor couch or whatever it might yes. be. <laughs> and so one of the things that I, I'm really interested in, and I think a lot of uh, you know, people listening to this would be interested in is like, as you approach coming on with a new client, or maybe like testing out a new channel, say maybe someone's never done Snapchat before. And so you're like taking over Facebook and Google and adding Snapchat, what are some of the considerations that you have? And then like, how do you think about approaching, you know, those considerations, maybe like, what are some of the metrics you always think are important? And then how do you what are some of the considerations you have to, to maybe like change how you think about something? like conversion rate from being like a great leading indicator to being like, oh no, this is like a six week lagging indicator actually. For sure. I think it's so important to understand um, your your average order value and how your product price is going to affect that conversion cycle. I would say that's one of the number one things I look at in determining what channels a brand should be on is how expensive is the product? What is the consideration period? How long is that going to be? And um, what metrics should we look at instead of just conversion rate or return on ad spend, because we know that the lag time is six weeks or eight weeks or whatever it is. So um, I am working with a brand that they sell a $5,000 outdoor sofa. (laughs) And so um, something that we look at, instead of just like how much money do we spend today and how much do we get back today, we understand that there is a long consideration cycle. So we're looking at metrics like cost per ad to cart, cost per checkout initiated, are people getting through our funnel? Um, what landing pages do people spend the most time on and interact with? Um, so a lot more like higher level metrics than just return on ad spend. But it's also going to dictate what channels we're on. So if I'm selling a $5,000 sofa, um, Snapchat is probably not going to be a great channel for this brand because um, all the data suggests that Snapchat is very great for impulse purchases, like a $30 makeup or handbag. And the main target audience is between 13 and 20 years old. So 13 and 20 years old aren't buying $5,000 outdoor sofas, and they're definitely not making it as impulse buy. So understand that'd be a, that'd be a weird yeah. flex for like a 16 year old. <laughs> it would be. It, it would be probably the, the biggest flex, but um, but yeah, um, understanding that type of stuff and like TikTok, probably not a great brand if you're not an impulse purchase and if you can't. Uh, measure that conversion rate on the same day that someone goes to the site. So um, those are really important metrics to understand. That's awesome. Moving on to kind of our our last pillar until we move on to some fun things like this last pillar of strategy. You talked a little bit, touched on that of like, how do you choose different media channels to buy? Just curious to get your thoughts kind of again, like uh, as you think about different businesses, how do you approach I think in general, like how do you approach what are good tests and experiments to run versus like just doubling down on something that works? Like how do you balance hammering home something that works with saying like, no, we have 
And like, we have a big market and, and we need to get in front of more people. Yeah. How do you think about that? And then is there a way that you kind of tie that back to the metrics of the business and, and obviously ultimately their goals? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the way that I like to think about it is, of course, never, never turn off what's working. So for instance, if you have like your always on Facebook and Google campaigns um, that are driving consistent results, there would never be a time where I'm like, let's just turn those off and try something completely new. Uh, let's go a different direction. It's like, no, we we know that, that there's something that's working. Let's keep those on. Let's double down those efforts. Let's keep doing more of what we know it works. And I would say that's like 80% of the total marketing budget is put towards like doubling down on what's working, which makes sense. You want to do more of what's working. However, I think the 20% remaining of the budget is also really important because it's also important to grow and um, can we get better results if we tried something else? Can we achieve more efficiencies on a different channel? So I always use like around like a 20% of the overall marketing budget to their chest to brand new channel, um, brand new creative types. So if this brand was only running like long form videos, like let's try some boomerang, let's try some gifts, let's try some UGC content, like let's try some new stuff um, in terms of creatives that you've never done before. Um, let's be a bit more experimental. And so from those tests, whether it's testing different creatives each week or different platforms throughout the month um, of your budget, then you can see, okay, this is working. Now that becomes part of your always on, this is what's working campaign. Let's double down on what's working. Um, it kind of gets moved over to the other 80% of the budget of um, keeping on um, what's what's already going great. While still then thinking of the next new experiment, what's the next new type of creative we're going to test? Um, is there any other platforms we haven't tested? So it's it's an always evolving cycle. That's great. And I think that's I think that's like super helpful for a lot of people listening of of just like having that framework to work within of like, you know, maybe like that 80-20 rule. So yeah, thank you for that. Uh, I guess moving on from kind of the more serious part to having some fun, always love to kind of end on a high note. You know, kind of for our fun time today, would love to hear obviously you're creating an awful lot of ads yourself, but would love to hear like do you have positive and negative do you have any ads that like have stuck out to you over the last few years that are like loved this or just like whoa totally missed the mark yeah for sure i mean there's there's been so many ads <laughs> throughout <laughs> um the years but there there are a couple that that stood out as real winners um probably my favorite ad campaign was when i was working on ColourPop cosmetics which is the number one shopify store in the world and this was their first major campaign that I did for them for Facebook ads. And it was a collaboration between ColourPop and Disney. So huge collaboration. And so what we did is we, we created an entire asset toolkit for them. So GIFs, boomerangs, short videos, long videos, slideshows. Um, we tried a ton of different creative types all to promote this ColourPop Disney campaign. And it ended up being just the most smashed success I think anything with Disney on it absolutely helps. <laughs> um, that that was a big part of it, of course, was just the um, the brand recognition of the collaboration. But it really changed um, the business direction of ColourPop and how they interact with like these collaborations going forward. Like it's such a huge part of their business now, and so so that was really cool. It was just like a massive collaboration that I was able to lead the strategy on. Um, switching gears to the worst campaign, this one was not one I managed, but one that I actually saw. And it's from a brand, they sell like a massage gun. 
like for like muscle recovery. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's a few different brands like that. Out there. <laughs> um, but one of the, the leading one, I'll, I'll leave it at that. The leading massage gun brand, every time they, they launch an ad recently, it just misses the mark. And it's almost, it's so bad because you go to the comment section and they're just getting t- like torn apart to shreds. <laughs> so their most recent ad was a guy who was climbing a mountain, like rock climbing. He also, you could tell that like he was not actually a professional rock climber. He was like a model because he didn't have the right gear on. He wasn't even wearing a helmet. Um, he didn't have the right ropes. So all of the rock climbing people are just like killing this guy in the comments of this ad, like, this is just bullshit. <laughs> and so this guy's climbing up the mountain and he stops climbing up the mountain to use the massage gun oh, on his that. arm. And it's like, wait, if you're climbing up this massive mountain and you have your small little backpack, are you really carrying this heavy massage gun? <laughs> so you could stop what for a second and give yourself a massage. Uh, yeah. The comments were just so bad but this is like one of many of these types of ads this brand's put out and just like you need to stop just just give up with it with this concept of the rock climbers but um, but yeah that was one that stood out in recent memory that was really really bad that's my favorite one because i'm sure the tagline is like don't be caught up on the mountain without the massage gun or just exactly like like insert product (laughs) into inspirational phrase um yeah (laughs) those those are those are funny i think um my favorite example over is this this one kind of got blown up almost universally, but it kind of went it was like a full circle, like really bad to really good was the the horrid Peloton ad of the if you remember the the husband gifting the wife the Peloton. Yes, I do um, that one. That was just of course like off the mark, but like um I think everyone knows that one was bad, but I think the aviation gen kind of coming in, Ryan Reynolds, yeah, it's his gen company coming in and using the same actress from the Peloton ad and She's like out with her friends. Like I, I think she's celebrating leaving the guy that gave her the Peloton yeah. bike or something. <laughs> yeah, it's the most like like clever like breaking the barrier like ad. I don't know. Of course, Peloton didn't collaborate on it, but it's just like they just nailed that whole concept and and of course like you know put their brand in a in a better light and you know of course like the right message attached to it. So I think that whole cycle between cycle there's a pun um it's like it was uh was pretty interesting um that i i, I celebrate still that's amazing I, I feel like peloton in general just getting roasted over and over again of like like very attractive middle-aged like yuppie person like with a peloton in the middle of like an all-glass arboretum that you know everyone has like where else would you put your peloton other than that has just like spawned so many awesome memes across yes. social. Yeah, Pe- Peloton, not only good for keeping you in shape during quarantine, but also, you know, keeping us all entertained with their terrible ads. Oh, God. <laughs> Moving to the final section here. Actually, one question before we go to, to the final section, Savannah. Is MySpace making a comeback? There's a right and wrong answer. <laughs> Is it? I have not heard of it making a comeback, but do you have I any breaking it. news? Not no, yeah, I, I get it. You're not revealing all your secrets. We get it. Um, now I I have no idea. I feel like it keeps like being advertised by people. Like, what if MySpace would have survived and Facebook wasn't what it is now? And I don't know. I, um, <laughs> I pray for a eventual comeback. I don't know if I have ads or not, but um, mid 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 two thousands nostalgia. Next trend after nineties nostalgia is over with. 
Oh, yeah. for sure. I have so much 2000s nostalgia. <laughs> All right. I know that you're pretty passionate about this uh, this platform and this subject, but um, we just really want to hear you uh, you know, share all your thoughts around Snapchat advertising. I think the really just the mic's here is in, in, interested to hear what, what you have to say. Yeah, for sure. I would say if I was to name like one of the biggest trends for 2020 in social advertising has been the huge shift towards Snapchat ads. So now clients are coming to me specifically only to run Snapchat campaigns. And the reason why, just because the traffic is so much cheaper, really great conversion rates. And like I mentioned before, if you have an impulse product that's under $30 and you can target like the 13 to 20 year old age group, you can get a lot better results on um, Snapchat most of the time than you will on Facebook where it's really competitive. So I just want to throw that out there that I think Snapchat is definitely leading the way in terms of like the top channel to go to if you if you kind of reach the limit on Facebook and Google. I really had a great time working with this platform and would highly recommend others to um, check out Snapchat ads as well. That's awesome. Right, last question on Snapchat ads. You know, for people who are thinking about exploring Snapchat, particularly with like Q4 coming up, what's like one or two pieces of advice that you have? Obviously, already talked about, you know, like kind of uh, ad hoc, like decision making, talked about the demographic. But in terms of like, you know, someone being able to see really quickly whether or not they're successful on Snapchat, what are the things that you think about? Is it, you know, just straight up ROAS? Is it looking at blended ROAS and seeing like, hey, it's just having another place where we're getting in front of people like driving that down, even if they're, you know, multi-touch. What are the things mm-hmm. that you think about as, as like, you know, showing you if, if Snapchat, what are the leading indicators that might, you know, tell you that Snapchat could be a meaningful channel for you? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think one of the best things about Snapchat is just the ease of setup. So once you install a Snapchat pixel, it's really easy to launch your first campaign. And then being able to really easily see after the first couple of days of it running, if your ad is working from a ROS perspective. Um, one thing about Snapchatters is that they're very much impulse buyers, which is great if you're trying to get data back really quickly. So you can launch an ad today for $100, see if anyone has any impulse buys and purchase on that same same day. Um, so you can measure ROAS um, like on a very like real-time basis. but like you also mentioned, for larger brands, um, Snapchat can also just be a part of the media mix, um, where even though it may not be getting great platform ROAS, it's just about increasing the frequency of getting your brand in front of your target audience. So CPMs is really cheap on Snapchat. So let's just say if you already have a really warm audience, like people who have been to your website recently, you can get in front of them a lot more often on Snapchat than you would on Facebook and Google, just because the traffic and the ad space is so much cheaper. Um, so some brands like to use Snapchat just to stay really top of mind to like their warmest audiences. Awesome. That's awesome. Um, I'm going to do a quick plug for you. Are you a brand interested in Snapchat? Well, you should talk to the <laughs> Savannah. Yes, please. Savannah.com. Um, the social Savannah.com. I also have a coupon for a thousand dollars of free ad spend on Snapchat. Um, I can I'll send that over to you guys if you want to share with your listeners, maybe in uh, the description box or something. But um, but I do have that coupon available as well. Oh, of course, we'll uh, we'll share it far and wide. Yeah, thanks for thanks for joining today. This has been illuminating. We got to talk about nostalgia, ads, everything in between. Loved it. Thank you. Thank you guys. This was so much fun, and I really appreciate the conversation. Absolutely. Thanks, everybody. Bye.
It's time for the movers and shakers. Who is making the moves in the industry that we cannot stop talking about? Kicking off, we're going to be talking about Notco. Uh, this is a Chilean food tech company. Uh, they specialize in plant-based meat and dairy alternatives. So they just raised $85 million, and most of that is due to expand into U.S. and North America. Notco's brands include some uh, some interesting names, the Not Burger, Not Meat, Not Ice Cream, Not Mayo, and you guessed it, Not Milk. So they're already supplying meat substitute products to Burger King and Papa John uh, restaurants in, in South America. So it'll be interesting to see them battle with the likes of Perfect Day and Beyond Meat in the States. So they have a very novel approach with their their plant-based products, You know, replicating the entire sensory experience, not just one element. So... Um, you know, I guess you could say it's heating up there in the uh, the plant based food food space. Moving along, PepsiCo just uh, announced the launch of a new drink called Driftwell. Driftwell is meant to help consumers relax and unwind before bed. What's interesting about this launch, other than it being an e commerce expansion, it is the fastest new product to ever come out of the company, and they have a very long history of of products reaching the market. So. Driftwell will be available nationwide on e-commerce sites uh, December 2020 and will be in grocery stores by the first quarter of 2021. Uh, I'll say that is quite the effort from a CPG giant, especially with the ongoing shift to e-commerce. So take note, anyone in that space. Some more fundraising. As you can imagine, uh, with COVID and quarantining, the online home furnishing companies saw some pretty accelerated growth uh, this time this year. Specifically, Cherish, uh, which is an online marketplace for high-end furnishings. Um, the seven-year-old San Francisco-based company announced a $33 million Series B round funding this month. What's interesting about that and the greater industry is that while it's always been kind of growing steadily as people have come around to the, the you know, not having to go in person to, to pick out your on, you know, home furnishings, the market got accelerated by five years due to COVID. Um, and reports are saying the overall market is expected to grow by $83 billion over the next four years. Keep in mind that's grow, not cap. Quite the homecoming for, for the home furnishing markets. Moving along, we've got Athleisure Wear brand, uh, popular one, Lululemon, uh, released their Q2 earning results. You know, they're major, so this 2% growth um, is it seems like a little bit. It's pretty high for their annual est- estimate. Sorry, two percent over expected uh, annual return. the The huge shift there is their company owned stores, so like brick and mortar, is actually down fifty five percent in the second quarter. Um, how they overall uh, increased was direct to consumer e commerce sales was uh, up one hundred and fifty five percent. That ended up representing 61.5% of total revenue. You can compare that with Q2 of 2019. Uh, so last year for Lululemon at the same time, that was only 24.6%. So we went from a, a quarter to uh, 61%. So crazy rapid shift, uh, adapting shift for the Lululemon brands. In a similar vein, um, the behemoth, Walmart. Uh, they've been uh, heavy investment in, in e-commerce uh, even prior to uh, the rapid acceleration in 2020. Q2 earnings also showed uh, e-commerce sales were up 97 percent, 
Uh, pretty wild for if you think about the numbers and, and transactions we're talking about with them. Uh, Walmart's online marketplace, very popular growing marketplace, also saw a boost in Q2 and sales were, uh, were up over 100%. So um, everyone's at the e-com party these days, even the oldest, oldest ones in the game. Um, all right, let's, uh, let's, let's scale back down. Let's talk some launches. Uh, two new brands that got put on our radar that I think are awesome to introduce into their respective segments, niches. A new brand entered uh, you know, America's already booming sexual wellness market. It is Champ. So Champ not only wants to do away with the awkwardness that comes with buying contraceptives, it hopes to reposition condoms as an aspirational health and wellness staple. So uh, Champ's pretty interesting because they're a fun brand. Well, they're, you know, the website branding, the, the whole direct-to-consumer experience, but... They're pretty steadfast on, at the core, it's a consumer health brand. Uh, and health is at the central of everything that they're doing. Their founders state having a product out there that's appealing, healthy, and aspirational, including energizing, will overall benefit the category and hopefully just usage for their purpose as well. So if you want to check out the launch and see where they are, it's www.meetchamp.com. The second launch we want to talk about is Fen. So Finn is uh, pioneering a new category of wellness for, for pets with everything they needed to live their healthiest, happiest lives. So they're starting with four vet-approved soft chew supplements. It's got science, it's got clean ingredients, it's got standards of today's wellness movement, and it's just a pretty clean uh, brand and, and, and buying experience. So you want to check out the, uh, the newest uh, uh, supplements for your pet, go to www.petfinn.com. It's two ends. Two awesome launches there. So excited to see them grow in their space. Um, all right. To finally put this episode to bed, uh, we're going to talk about Gravity Products. So Gravity Products is the parent company behind the weighted Gravity Blankets. They've always been diversifying their reach and an approach since they've launched in 2017 beyond the just beyond just having the the website. So the uh, the sleep brand is making a, uh, a a big plunge into big box stores. They uh, they recently announced uh, uh, a brick and mortar partnership uh, with Target. So they're going to be rolling out to 900 Target stores um, starting uh, in Q4. Um, as well as Target's retail website. So going digital and uh, brick and mortar. So with this, Gravity will also be selling uh, four items, including a new line called Z by Gravity, which will cost less than the, uh, the other blanket lines on uh, Gravity's website. So gra- their blankets are you know, a little bit on the, the pricier side, probably. And it's an awesome product, and it's kind of a little bit more upscale. So it's cool to see them offer a more low-end product, especially moving into big box and on the ground with a, a wide range of consumers. So Gravity Products uh, making moves into the commerce atmosphere. Well, uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to another good episode of Good Company. And may the markets be ever in your favor. Thank you.